Amen, friends. If you got your Bibles, let's go. Psalm 34 is where we've been. We have one week left in Psalm 34. Uh, we're going to be wrapping it up next week, and then we have a brand new series that we're going to be uh, launching into you for kind of the remainder of the winter. Psalm 34, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's a blue one underneath the seat you're sitting in. You can reach down and pull out that blue Bible. You're going to want one. And in the, in the blue Bible, Psalm 34 is on page uh, 513. And before we get into the text, uh, let me set the context for us while you're flipping there, right? If you've been around, you know the context. If you're brand new, uh, it's really important to kind of understand where this psalm is birthed out of. This psalm is written by David. David was the king of the nation of Israel. And in this moment of his life where this psalm is thought to have been written or come out of, uh, David is on the run for his life. He has been anointed as king by God, but the reigning and ruling king is a guy named King Saul. If you've read your Bible, you know that uh, King Saul refuses to relinquish his throne. He says, I will not step off this throne. And so his solution to the problem is to find David and kill him. Seems like a good idea, but it doesn't work, right? Saul is on the hunt for David. David is running for his life, and David is captured. But he's not captured by Saul. He's not captured by the Israelites. He's captured by the Philistines. And if anybody hates David as much as Saul, it's the Philistines. Right? David has humiliated them. He's killed Goliath. He's defeated them in battle. They hate David. And so they bring David in before the Philistine king. And David, in this moment, he fakes insanity. This is his, this is his tactic. This is his strategy. He begins to like drool all over himself. His beard is filled with spit. Um, He's scratching and clawing and grunting. And they bring him in before the king. He's tearing his clothes. The king is like, yeah, like, who is this? This is not David. This is not the mighty warrior. This isn't the one that feeded Goliath. What, what, what do you do? What's wrong with you? So they throw him out. They throw him out and he flees. He runs and he escapes. He runs to a cave. And David hides out in this cave. And, he, and there he, in this cave is where Psalm 34 is birthed out of. This moment in the cave, he calls his family and his friends as close as confidants to join him in this cave, and he burst into song, burst into praise. And so far, as we've walked through the psalm, David has called his hearers, you and me, he's called us to be a people of praise, he's called us to be a people of prayer, and now today he's going to call us to be a people of fear. He's going to call us to be a people of fear. So here we are, Psalm 34, we're going to start in verse 9, and here at Flourishing Grace we believe that this is the word of God. It's a gift given to us from his hands. It's something that we are to conform our lives to, not conform it to our lives. And so in reverence to the word of God, if you are able, would you stand with me as I read it for us this morning? Psalm 34, verse 9. David writes this. Oh, fear the Lord, you, his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace. And pursue it. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. All right. So as I said a moment ago, right, David has called us to praise. He's called us to be a people of prayer. And now he's called us to be a people of fear. Right? In, in this moment, David, David is looking at his situation. And he's realizing what the fear of the Lord has done for him. 
He's realizing what the fear of the Lord has done for him. Those who fear the Lord have far more than those who are feared by the world. Those who fear the Lord have far more than those who are feared by the world. David is looking at the world around him. He's seeing King Saul, who's feared by the world. He's seeing the Philistine king, who's feared by the world. And David is realizing because of his fear of the Lord, he has far more than those men will ever have. He is delighting in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is something that comes up again and again and again throughout Scripture. And it comes up in a good light. A good, there's a good reason, and there's good things that happen when we fear the Lord. And that's what I hope that we will see today. I want you to see three things. Number one, those in Christ have no lack. Those who fear him have no lack. But those outside of Christ live in constant want. Number two, right fears lead to right behaviors. Right fears lead to right behaviors. And then lastly, true fear leads to true life. Those are the three things we're going to walk through in this text this morning. So number one, those in Christ have no lack, but those outside of Christ live in constant want. Those in Christ have no lack, but those outside of Christ live in constant want. We see this in 9 and 10. David is comparing and contrasting. Here's what he says. He says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, you who are Men and women of God, you who are in Christ, you as saints, fear the Lord. For those who fear him have no lack. There it is. But then he goes on in verse 10 to kind of paint this image. He says, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. He's giving this as kind of comparison, contrastion, contrast. Contrasting, contrasting, whatever, doesn't matter. He's comparing and contrasting young lions to you and me, saints in Christ. He's comparing and contrasting young lions to saints in Christ, right? He's giving us this, this image for us to kind of set our minds in. And this week has been really fun. I've been walking home uh, with, my, with my oldest son, Winston. He's seven. And I've been walking this, through this sermon all week long and talking with him about this sermon. And this, this passage in particular, this part of the passage in particular, I was trying to help him to see, I mean, what's he talking about here, Winston? Winston's like, I, I don't know. And I was like, all right, Winston, what are, what are some that people fear? Winston's, Winston's like, well, spiders, Dad. Spiders. Yes, okay. W- what is greater than a spider? What's more ferocious? What's more scary? Winston's a tarantulas. I'm like, okay, kind of the same thing, but all right. Let's go with it. What's greater than a tarantula? What's bigger? What's stronger? What's more scary than a tarantula? Dogs. Okay. We happen to be walking past some dogs that were barking at the time. At us. All right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Dogs. Dogs are scarier than tarantulas. I mean, these big dogs are, right? Scarier than a tarantula. All right. What's bigger and stronger and scarier than a dog? Winston's like, jaguars. We've been reading this book about the rainforest. I'm like, okay, yes, jaguars. What's bigger and scarier and more ferocious than a jaguar? Come on, Winston. Help me out. He's bears. Dang it. All right. What's bigger and stronger and scarier than a bear? Finally, lions. We get the lions. And I'm like, okay, yes. What is bigger and stronger and scarier and mightier than a lion? Whales. No. Like you, no, on land. He's like, I don't know. I'm like, that's the point. That's it. David is picking the apex predator on planet Earth, the, the most strongest, the most ferocious thing you can think of. A young lion in his prime. He says, even that young lion, the, the greatest, the strongest, the most ferocious, the most fierce, in its prime suffers want and hunger. There are young lions that starve to death. 
There are young lions that do not make it. There are young lions that go hungry. They suffer want and they suffer hunger. But those who look to the Lord, those who fear him, they have no lack. They have no lack. And so all week long, you can ask Winston, hey, Winston, who's, who's greater than young lions? And he'll tell you, those who look to the Lord. Those who look to the Lord. Those who look to the Lord are those who have no lack because we look to a God who is, who is the ultimate provision of the soul, a God of abundance, a God who has more than we can ever begin to ask or imagine. That is our God. That is who he is. And yet, if we're honest, we are a people of lack. We live in a world of lack. We live in, we live in a world where people are in constant want, constantly needing the, the next thing. I need the, I need the newest phone, the latest phone. I, I need the newest car. I, I like my car, but I, need, I want this car. I, I like my house, but this house is, is nicer. I, I, I like my job, but that job's better, right? I, I need a better spouse. I need better kids. I need people to just, if everybody could just see things the way that I could see them, then the world would be a better place. We're gonna, we live in a constant lack. We see everything. There, there's a way that everything could be better, and if we could just get there, th- then, then we would be satisfied. Our souls would be satisfied. However, we know that's not true. We know it's not true. David says in verse 12, he says, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? What what, what man is there that desires life? And loves many days that he may see good. Who, what man is there that wants to see good? What man is there that desires life? All of them. All of us. Right? Every, every great scholar and thinker and philosopher and theologian, they've, they've, we've all arrived at this end, right? Famously, I've quoted this quote before from Blase Pascal. Blase Pascal was a French mathematician and philosopher, theologian. He was brilliant in the 1500s. And in his the thoughts of Pascal, the Pensis de Pascal. Pascal says this, he says, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. There is no exception to this rule. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attained with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object, the object of Fulfillment, contentment, happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves, Pascal says. Every human being is seeking to be satisfied, to be filled, for their souls to be filled. Augustine said it this way. He said, every man, whosoever his condition, desires to be happy. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your family of origin. Everyone is desiring to be filled, to be happy, to be satisfied. The great Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards said, There is no man upon the earth who isn't earnestly seeking after happiness. And it appears abundantly by the variety of ways they so vigorously seek it. They will twist and turn every way, ply all instruments, to make themselves happy men. 
We are constantly a people of want. Our souls are hungry. Our hearts are thirsty. Our minds are racing. We want, we want, we want, we want, we want. We're not a people who are satisfied. Why? Why? I would argue that the answer is actually very simple. Because we were designed to be a people who are filled with the only thing that can actually fill us. You think, you think about our, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, did Adam and Eve eat from the tree in the middle of the garden because they were hungry? No. They had access to every other fruit, every other plant, every other thing imaginable. They, they, were, not, they were not hungry, literally hungry. They were not hungry. They eat because their souls were hungry. No. They, they were walking in the presence of God every single day. They were not hungry. They were satisfied. They were satisfied. They ate from the tree in the middle of the garden because they bought into the greatest lie of Satan, a lie that every man and every woman in this room has bought into. Temptation, yeah. But what is temptation? It's the idea that there's something outside of God that will satisfy us. There's something outside of God that can actually bring greater satisfaction. If you eat from this tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. You can obtain something that's greater than what God can give you. This is not true. And yet we walk around, we spend our days actually believing that. That if I could, yes, yes, I want a flourishing relationship with Jesus, but I also think I need this too in order to be satisfied. I, I need my marriage to look like this. I need my job to look like this. I need my kids to look like this. And if those things don't happen, it does not matter what kind of relationship I have with the God of all things. I will not be satisfied. That is not true. Those things will never satisfy you. And you know they'll never satisfy you. You know this because you have achieved them. Not the ones that are out there in the distance in the future that you're thinking about right now, but you've achieved the ones in the past. You got that job that you dreamed about. Or you reached that level in your bank account that you always thought was going to be satisfying. You found that special someone and you married them. You had those kids. You, you went on that trip. You did those things. You had that adventure. And you still live in want. You still live in lack. You thought it was going to satisfy you. And maybe for a split second, you felt it. You tasted it. But it wasn't the real. It wasn't the genuine because it wasn't the Lord. We are people who can only be satisfied in him. Paul knows this. Paul writes about this kind of famously in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger in abundance, in need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says, man, I have I've lived my life. I've been in situations where I've had everything. I've had plenty. I, I've had abundance. I've had a full belly. I've been, been in situations where I've been really hungry. I've been in situations where I've had nothing, where everything has been taken from me. And in all of these things, I have been satisfied. 
Our satisfaction, our contentment, our, our fullness, the fullness of the human soul is not tied to the things of this earth. It's tied to Christ. Our lack comes to its end when we look to Christ for our supply. Christ is man's end in the search for life and meaning and even want. What are the things that the soul craves? Love. Love. Our soul craves love. We are people who need to be loved. Our our need for love meets its end in Christ's love for us. Because no one will ever love you as much as he loves you. No one will ever love you with such an intense love. No one will ever love you as perfectly as he loves you. There is no greater love than the love that Christ has given you, that God has given you through his Son, through Christ. Our search, our hunger for love meets its end in Christ. And so if you are still saying, no, I need love, I'm hungry for love, you do not understand the love of Christ. You have not satisfied yourself in him. You have not tasted and seen, verse 8, which we talked about last week, you have not tasted and seen how good his love is. You have not plumbed the depths of it. You can eat it all day long, and there's still more tomorrow. He loves you with an infinite love. Other things our soul craves, meaning and purpose. Our meaning and purpose is fulfilled in Christ, right? He has given us a mission and a vision for our lives, whereas ambassadors, we've been called, we've been given a mission to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He has called us out of spiritual darkness and brought us into the, to the kingdom of his marvelous light. We are his children. We are his ambassadors. We go before him. We have a mission and a purpose in our life. And if you, and if you feel like, man, I, my life has no purpose, my life has no meaning, you have not tasted and seen. You have not plumbed the depths of all that he's called you to. Our hunger for meaning and purpose is completely filled in the meaning and purpose that he has given us. Life and death, our eternity is secured in Christ. Our need for peace of mind, our need for rest, it's all in Christ, right? Come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest, Jesus says, right? Uh, Anxiety, like this, I'm not talking about clinical anxiety and depression. I'm talking about every day, like tight-chested when nothing's going your way and just nothing's working out, right? In that moment, anxiety is simply just imagining a future without Jesus in it where he's not king and I need to control this. He's not in charge. I need to take charge. Peace is found in the Prince of Peace. All of these things that our soul craves are found in Christ. Augustine says our hearts are restless until they rest in you, right? This idea that we will be a restless people if we are the ones who are constantly trying to control, constantly trying to do it on our own, constantly trying to stuff our soul with things that will never satisfy Christ alone satisfies. Only then, complete surrender to the Prince of Peace, will we find our peace. When he is king of every square inch of our lives, when we've truly surrendered everything to him. And we can go on and on and on about the cravings of the soul and how they're met in Christ and the implications of those cravings. There's so much. There's so much to unpack. But the flip side is also true. When we find our identity in anything other than Jesus, we will be filled with lack. We will be filled with lack. You cannot, 
You cannot be satisfied by the things of this world. Whatever it is for you, if you want Jesus and you want fill in the blank, I want the Garden of Eden and I want the tree in the middle. I want the kingdom of Christ and I want to be king. Whatever it is for you, whatever, whatever it is, fill in the blank. Yes, I want Jesus. I want everything that he has to offer. But I also want this because this is going to fulfill my lack. You've missed it. You will never be satisfied until you are fully satisfied in him and him alone. So where is your soul hungry right now? You come in this room this morning, and, and before you got here, maybe this week, you have to think back over your week, think back over your m- month. Where, what is your soul craving? Where is your soul hungry? Where are, you, where are you lacking? Is Jesus king in that area of your life? Have you tasted and seen that he is good in that area of your life? Have you ate your fill of him in that area of your life? I believe that if you do, you will be satisfied. Because those who look to him are greater than young lions. And you can be too. Number two, right fears lead to right behaviors. Right fears lead to right behaviors. Here's how, here's how David puts it. He says, Oh, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. This is verse 11, right? He said, come, come here. I want to teach you. I want to teach you the fear of the Lord. I don't think he's talking about literal children. I think he's talking about you and me. He's talking about the adults that are with him there in the cave. Come, come, O ch- little children. Let me teach you. Let me show you the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. It's a good thing. And there are good fears. There are right fears. There are healthy fears. But then there are also bad fears and illogical fears and fears that lead us into the wrong things, right? We know this. We know there are good fears. The fear of heights, a rational fear of heights is a good fear. It's the fear that saves you from plummeting to your death. That's a good thing, right? I mean, I, I think that's pretty good. No? Okay. All right. It's not good. Uh, the fear of venomous snakes, like a rational fear of venomous snakes, I think is a good fear, Right? It saves me from being bitten and losing my appendages. Seems good. Seems all right, right? We know that there are good fears, but we also know that there are irrational fears. There, there are fears that are irrational, fears that are not logical, fears that cause us to do things that are just silly, that don't make any sense. I looked some of these up this week, and the list is overwhelming. It's massive, right? I couldn't even get through all the A's. My favorite one in the A's uh, was arithmophobia which is the fear of numbers. Anybody afraid of numbers? Nobody? Like imagine if you had a friend that had arithmophobia. You'd just be like, one, two, three, four, five, six, right? And just like scare them all the time. It'd be amazing. You don't have to jump out and say boo. You just have to count. It's amazing. Like, how fun would that be to have that person in your life? So life-giving, so satisfying. Um, not as much as the fear of the Lord, but it would be amazing. I got to meet that guy. There's so many illogical fears, but then there are also unhealthy fears, right? There are fears that lead us to do wrong things. The fear of man, we see this often. It is through the Bible we see this so prevailing. The fear of man and how unhealthy it is. 
We see this in social media where we are constantly afraid. What are people going to think of me? Are people going to like my posts? Are people not going to like my posts? Is it going to get enough likes or is it not going to get enough likes? What if, what if people unfollow me on social media because of my posts? What, 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 if, what, if what if my boss thinks of, of what I post? Or what, what, if, what, is my, what does my friend think of this? Or what does my spouse think of this? We're constantly afraid and doing things out of the fear of man. And we can easily be manipulated into doing things that we shouldn't do because we're afraid of what somebody may think of us, what somebody may do to us, constantly afraid of man. It's an, it's an illogical fear, but even when it's logical, it can lead us to bad. It's a bad fear. It's a fear, it's a fear that we should, we should fight to overcome. But the reality, this is, this is what I want you to see, good fears lead to good behaviors because good fears actually triumph over bad fears. Good fears help us to overcome bad fears. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. I have a picture. This is, uh, this is a drawing from Gustave Dor. He was a French uh, artist in the 1800s, and, and he's kind of famous for, for drawing some dark stuff. Um, I think this qualifies. Um, Gustave Dor, uh, he, he actually, he's drawn a bunch of uh, biblical Picture, these pictures that kind of encapsulate biblical narratives. You can actually buy his, like, Gustav Gore's, like, version of the Bible that um, has, like, illustrations like this one um, on, on all the pages. And uh, you can see, uh, so this, this picture, for those of you who are like, what? It just happened. This is, this is Noah's flood, um, his depiction of Noah's flood, right? And the, and the boat is nowhere to be found. The ark is nowhere to be found. But what you see here is... Uh, there's so many things happening in this picture. We just don't have time to get into it all. But what I want you to see, right, mom and dad uh, are down there in the water, uh, and they're, they're drowning, which is happy Sunday. They're shoving their, their infant children up onto a rock so their children won't drown. But then when you look at the rock, on top of the rock is a tiger, a tiger on the rock, um, with, with her own cubs up there on the rock seeking shelter from this uh, storm. And there's so, there's so many things happening in this picture. I, I love this. I also showed this to Winston this week as on our walk home. I'm like, what do you think about this? And he's like, no, I'm a horrible parent. Um, mom and dad are shoving their kids up onto a rock with a tiger. What do you think about this? Is, 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 is your kids being that close to a tiger a good fear? Illogical fear. Not a trick question. Would you allow your kids to be that close to a full-grown tiger? No one is answering me, and that's kind of creeping me out more than the photo. No, yes, it's a good fear. You would not allow your kid to get that close to a tiger. What is wrong with you? It's a horrible, it's a horrible thing to think what would happen if my kid, my infant kid, was that close to a tiger. So why on earth are mom and dad shoving their kids onto a rock with a tiger? Yeah. To save them from a greater fear. They have a greater fear. And so a greater fear overcomes the lesser fear. Yes, maybe there's a chance. Maybe there's a Maybe there's a chance my kid survives. The flood is the greater fear. The tiger is afraid of the flood. The tiger is pulling her cubs up onto the rock. The tiger, which is ter terrifying, is afraid of the flood because the flood is the greater fear. Uh, greater fears 
trump lesser fears, and they can actually help us to overcome these lesser, inappropriate, weaker fears. What is the greatest fear? What is the thing that is greater than all other things? What is the most powerful, the most supreme, the most worthy, the most glorious, the most magnificent? What is the greatest? God. Worthy to be feared above all. Not feared like I'm afraid of what he might do in the middle of the night and jump out of me. Not that type of fear. That he's more powerful. He's more awe-inspiring. That he's greater. He's greater than the flood. He's greater than the storm. He's greater than anything else. He's more powerful than anything else. That's why Jesus can be asleep in the boat in the middle of a storm. Because he knows that which is most ultimate And those who fear God as ultimate, genuinely fear Him as ultimate, it's one thing to say it, it's one thing to think about, to actually internalize this and live your life with Him as the supreme authority, the supreme power over all things. It changes all of your other fears. It changes all of your other fears. This is why the author in Proverbs 9 can say the, be, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Because we actually begin to live rightly when our fears are ordered rightly. When you have a chief fear that is dictating the, the order of all of your other fears, we can actually begin to, to live our lives in a right manner. When we have a supreme one who is more powerful than everything else, it changes the way we see all of our other fears. When we learn to fear the Lord above all other fears, we actually are freed from those other fears. Right? Fear leads to right behavior. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, he who fears God has nothing else to fear. All of your other fears are quickly diminished when they're stacked next to the fear of the Lord. When when the power of the lion or the tiger is stacked next to the Lord, he's, he's a kitten. It's quickly diminished. Next to the power of God. Oswald Chambers put it this way. He said, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. We need a right fear in order to not allow the fears of the world to ensnare us. Do you see what's going on? Do you see how this plays out in your life? Think about it for a minute. At work. You might be afraid of your boss and what your boss may think of you. And so you're willing to make some compromises. You're willing to kind of adjust the numbers a little bit, to to, to rewrite the script, to, to maybe not say some things that need to be said because you're afraid of what your boss might do. Maybe you're afraid of losing your job. And so you're willing to make some compromises because you don't want to lose your job. Or maybe you really want that promotion and you're afraid you've already promised your kids, you've already promised your spouse's vacation, but you know it hinges on the promotion. So you're afraid of what they might think if you don't get that promotion this year. So you're willing to fudge the numbers a little bit. You're willing to make some compromises. You're willing to cover up some sin. Unless you have a greater fear. Unless the all-powerful one, the all-knowing one, the majestic and mighty one, the one who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise, unless you know him, then it would be foolish. It would be foolish to do those things. It would be foolish to do those things. Because you're living 
life with a right and healthy fear of God. Yes, you can have an unhealthy fear of God. You can have a wrong view of God. You can have a view of a God who's constantly angry with you and constantly always looking around for ways to pour out his wrath on you. That's not the fear of the Lord. For those who are in Christ, that's not the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is realizing that he is more powerful than all other things. And so in the moment when I am tempted to compromise my, my character, when I'm in the moment when I'm tempted to sin because of the fear of man, I have a greater fear. And I know that in him I will not suffer lack. No, come what may. He will fill my soul and I will be satisfied in him. And I can gladly push my job up onto a rock with a tiger. I have a greater fear. Maybe you're willing to belittle somebody on social media. You're afraid of what other people might think of you. Maybe, maybe you're willing to belittle somebody at work around the water cooler because you're afraid that they, they're next in line for the promotion that you were supposed to get two years ago and now you're not going to get it. And so you're willing to kind of cut them down and tear them down and spread some mistruths about them because you're afraid of what other people might think or what, what people might think less of you because of they're thinking more of them and you don't want to see that happen unless you have a greater fear. Right and healthy fear. But there is one who is more powerful than any promotion. There's one more powerful than any salary. There's one more powerful one. There's one who has given you an identity that cannot be shaken, that cannot be moved. And so who cares what the world thinks of your identity? You can push the world's view of your identity onto a rock with a tiger because the, the greatest one, the supreme one, has given you an identity that is sure and secure. Your soul has been filled by him. Your worth and your purpose are satisfied in him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom because it helps us to see all of our other fears rightly. We need right fear in order to not allow our, the, our fears of this world to ensnare us. So can you reject lesser fears that lead to sin because of a greater, a better, or more true fear can you do it? I believe that you easily can if you have a right and healthy fear of the Lord. But without the fear of the Lord, we will inevitably walk in sin. Without the fear of the Lord, we will inevitably choose sin in the midst of our lesser fears. And this is why David, in this psalm, he makes this hard turn. He's talking about the fear of the Lord. He's talking about how glorious it is and how beautiful it is. And he makes this hard turn. He begins talking about behavior. You know, there's this hard turn in verse 13 and 14. He starts talking about our behavior. He says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from every evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. He's saying, he's saying when you live with a right fear of God, you flee from evil. Whatever the cost may be, you seek peace. You keep your tongue from evil. You keep your lips from deceit. You don't speak lies. But if, if you don't have the fear of God, you will fall into those things. A.W. Tozer, the great thinker uh, from Chicago, says it this way. He says, when men no longer fear God, they transgress his laws without hesitation. The fear of consequences is no deterrent. And the fear of God is gone. Suddenly, when God is no longer the most supreme, the most powerful, in your mind, you are trying to become that. 
And you'll compromise everything in order to get there. But when you, when you realize, I will never be that, and all of that can fill all of me, you will not make those compromises. Kevin DeYoung put it this way, uh, author and pastor, he says, There is no sin so prevalent, so insidious, so deep as the sin of fearing people more than we fear God. It is a terrifying thing to not have rightly aligned fears. Think about it. Think about the things that you've done in your life because in that moment you failed to fear God, to see him as the supreme, ultimate one over all things, the one who is most glorious, most majestic, most powerful, most knowing. In that moment, you failed to see that. What was the result? It's a horrifying thing to not have a right fear of God. Lastly, true fear leads to true life. Uh, Augustine talks a lot about this idea of the order of our loves, right? We, we need to be a people who order our loves rightly. You don't, you don't love any two things the same. You realize this, right? You, you will ultimately choose one over the other. If you're forced to do it, you will choose one thing over another thing because you love that thing more than you love this thing. And when you rightly order your loves and you live a life out of rightly ordered loves, it is a life of beauty and flourishing because your heart is aligned. When you treasure Christ above all other things, and everything is rightly ordered out of that treasuring of Christ, your heart is aligned, and you're freed to make good decisions based on what is supremely lovely in your life. And this morning, I've kind of been making the case that your fears are the same thing. If, if, if the order of your loves dictate the actions of your heart, the order of your fears are dictating the actions of your mind. You don't fear anything the same either. If I said, hey, do you want to be in a cage with a lion or a poisonous snake? You would choose one because you fear one more than the other. When you rightly align your fears with God being preeminent, and again, I don't mean God is this, this thing to be feared as, as ferocious and terrifying and, and, and like I don't want to be in a cage with them. At the same time, I don't want to be in a cage with them. But I mean as, as the most more powerful than all other things. In the fear of the Lord, we are freed from all those other fears. And when you fear him, and fear him above all other things, and you rightly order your fears out of that fear, your mind is freed. Proverbs 19.23 says this. He says, the fear of the Lord leads to life. It leads to life. So often we think of the fear of the Lord as this bad thing, but what the psalmist is trying to get to see, and what the Bible says again and again and again, is this leads to life. It leads to right choices and good things. And whoever rest, whoever has it, rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. You see, the fear of the Lord keeps us from sin while leading us down life-giving paths. And ultimately, it leads us to Him. You see, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, while you, some might think, man, that drives me away from him. I don't want to be, I don't want to be near that. I don't want to be, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. But when you realize that the fear of the Lord has only been overcome one time ever, one time ever, it was overcome by the love of the Lord on the cross of Christ. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son 
and his only son faced the full fury of his fear. Faced the full fury of his wrath. He drank the full cup of the wrath of God on the cross. And he came out victorious. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. In, in that moment, we were, fe- we were freed from the spooky fear of God. Because our sins, the, the object of his anger was washed away in the blood of Christ. For those of us who are in Christ, for his saints who have, who have, who have, who have, who have all of our lack removed as we fix our gaze on him. In that moment, all of the object of his wrath was satisfied in Christ, and all that is left is this power and glory and majesty and splendor and might and strength that is to be feared, revered, and awed. But we can now boldly go before the throne because the love of God has conquered the fear of God. Perfect love casts out all fear, as John tells us. And so we can be a people who draw near to him who delight in the fear of the Lord, as David does in this psalm. We can be people whose lives are transformed with a healthy view of the fear of the Lord and a healthy view of the love of the Lord. All of our fears can melt away. All of our fears can melt away because the one who is worthy to be feared loves us with an incomprehensible love. So we can glorify him rightly and we can enjoy him at the same time, forever. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I come before you this morning and I ask that you would do a work, that you would open the eyes of your church, that you'd open, the, open my eyes to see the beauty and the sweetness and the goodness of those who rightly fear the Lord above all other fears that you would order our fears and that our behaviors would be transformed as we live lives of rightly ordered loves and rightly ordered fears, that we'd be a people who can conquer sin every day because of the work that you're doing in us by your grace and your grace alone, that we'd be a people who can face the fears of this world every day, whether it's the fears of our identity, the fears of what might be taken from us, the fears of of, of death, the fears of hunger, the fears of, uh, of not having money, not having possessions. We can face all the fears of this world, the things that the world says are scary. Say, so that's not scary to me. Because the one who is to be feared above all other fears loves me with an incomprehensible love. And he has filled me and he has satisfied me completely and fully. Would you do that work in us? By the power of your spirit, through the gospel of Christ, would you do that work in us? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.